Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. We're going to talk mental health. And the way you can support this podcast, you can't donate, but you can go to iTunes and give this podcast a review. You can give a review for my books, Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture is kind of what we'll be talking about in this podcast. You can review that book at Desert Book or Amazon, and I'll link to that book in the show notes that has um, topics we're covering. One of the topics is mental health. But anyway, that's only the that's the only housekeeping thing we'll do. We'll just get right to the podcast. Uh, my guest is Sister Nancy Smith, who's joining us from the California Anaheim Mission. She is a church service missionary and a mental health advisor. She lives in the Anaheim, California Mission footprint. She's been doing this for seven years. She is the mental health advisor for the 230 missionaries in the California Anaheim Mission. And um, she is going to talk on the podcast a little bit about her roles in doing that. I'll just give you an overview of the five sections, roughly, of the podcast. Nancy's going to talk about her own mental health journey. Um, That's brave and vulnerable. The second part will be her calling as a church service missionary in a mental health advisor role. The third thing she's going to talk about is mental health stigma. I continue to see in my calling. And the fourth thing, she'll talk about a a specific missionary. We won't give this missionary a name, um, but she'll talk about um, this experience in the spirit of helping others that are walking a similar road. Then if there's time, we'll talk about strategies to improve emotional health. Um, Nancy is a retired registered nurse, so she's had a whole life of blessing people through her nursing career. And instead of um, going into retirement, here she is being a church service mission missionary. She has four kids, 13 grandkids, four great-grandkids, and has been married for over 45 years. She lives in the Los Alamitos area um, of Orange County, if you're familiar with that area. And um, by coincidence, we had another guest, um, another current serving missionary from this mission on our podcast, Elder Shane Carpenter, shared his journey as a gay Latter-day Saint. And uh, that was a very groundbreaking podcast to have a current um, LGBTQ missionary with permission of his mission president um, share his story. Is that okay for an introduction, Sister Smith? Yes, thank you so much. Perfect. I'm going to probably call you Nancy most of the podcast, but I recognize in real life you're Sister Smith. Please call me Nancy. (laughs) We'll call you Nancy and... Just as a note, listeners, we had a son on his mission in Samoa, and I've mentioned this, at undiagnosed scrupulosity. And um, the he was in a really dark place, and it was somebody like Nancy, in this case Becky Edwards, that was doing what Nancy's doing and was able to walk my, our son, a huge answer to our prayer, out of darkness and into lo- light and hope. So this is sacred work that Sister Smith and others are doing around the world to, to help our full-time missionaries um, work through mental health challenges. And I don't want to do much too much talking here, but sometimes those are undiagnosed. We saw none of this in our son who had undiagnosed scrupulosity. It reared its ugly head um, and attacked the things that were most important to him as he wanted to be out serving a missionary, and you may touch on that. So without any more of me talking, let's get you talking, Nancy. Okay, I'll be happy to. Um, you know, I was so excited to hear some of these episodes. For instance, Noah Walker in episode 557, he talked about his OCD and the various subsets, which I'll touch on here. And also Ben Demo in episode 567 talked about how he recovered from OCD using exposure response therapy. And I didn't use that, but I, I'm grateful they have that therapy out now. And then Cassidy Lundgren. In episode 575, she talked about her struggle with scrupulosity and depression. And I start, started thinking, wow, you know, I'm not the only one out there. So I'm grateful that we have this, uh, this podcast to turn to. Thank you so much. Um, I would like to share my mental health journey because it really has made me be the person I am today. It sounds kind of crazy to say that, but it really has, has done that for me. And, I, and I'd like to share it with you. Um, 
It's the mental health journey uh, about uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is OCD. And it's really strange because it started when I was about 12 years old. And sometimes if you study about OCD, you see that sometimes it does, like you say, rear its ugly head at certain times in development, like puberty, 12 years old. And then it hit me again after the birth of a baby. Again, that's hormonal. So sometimes that's what happened. So I was 12. I don't remember much about it, except that I was doing repetitive behaviors, which my parents thought was very odd. So they quickly got me into a child psychiatrist. And I only remember having problems with it for one summer when I was 12. And then it seemed like it went away. And I call it that my symptoms went underground, okay, because they were just underground. And then from the ages of 12 to 23, absolutely normal. I came from a great family. Um, just everything was pretty much normal in my life. There was no problems there. Um, so everything was great until the age of 23. Well, actually, I joined the church when I was 23. I was a convert from another religion. Um, I only had been studying the gospel for about two months and then um, quickly got baptized and I quickly got married. And then we quickly had a baby 10 months later Wow! because they said, don't hold off having your family, which I'm glad they don't say that much anymore because it's sometimes a lot of pressure. So back to what J.C. Whiteman said in episode 572 about a performance-based religion, boy, that was me. I was checking off the checklist left and right. Over the pulpit, they would say, this is, again, back in the 70s. They don't do this as much anymore, thank goodness. But it was like, grow your garden, get your food storage, say yes to every calling, share the gospel, go to the temple. The list went on and on. Remember that? (laughs) And so now, um, you know, I'm thinking, I got to do all that, and I got to do it all right now. And I just better get that checklist out, and I've got this new baby, and I better have another baby really soon. it, that wasn't really what the church was saying, but that's how I interpreted it and maybe part of the culture. And I had come from a, and I won't share what religion I came from, but it was rather guilt-based. So I thought, you know, I'm a sinner. I didn't understand the true nature of God. I didn't really understand who he was. I definitely didn't understand the atonement. And uh, so this all kind of played into what happened because. The straw that broke the camel's back was when I was, well, Sarah, our oldest daughter, was nine months old, and she, um, you know, was a good little baby, but I thought I was pregnant with a second child, and she was only nine months old. Now, some people do that. That's great. But for me, that was the straw that broke my emotional camel's back. And the weirdest thing happened. It started, my symptoms were um, obsessive thoughts mostly scrupulosity and compulsive acts. And so the first symptom was a compulsive act. And what happened was I thought, I'm pregnant. I I need to take care of my baby that's inside. So I better take my prenatal vitamin. So I walked over to the cupboard and I opened the cupboard up and looked at the bottle and it it said, you know, prenatal vitamins. And I took one and uh, put it back in the cupboard and closed the door. And then my mind started saying, was that? prenatal vitamin or was it something that could hurt my baby i had better check again so i opened the cupboard went through the whole thing and i did this multiple times i did not know what was happening was scared i was scared to death but i felt compelled to do it otherwise uh, the anxiety got worse so i didn't know what was happening it was very strange and it just things like that kept happening i want to pause here and just say that there really are about four overall categories in OCD. The first one is concern about germs and contamination. I did not have that. The other one is concern about symmetry and the need for things to be just right or don't step on the crack or have everything aligned just right. The third one is what I had, unacceptable, usually repetitive thoughts about things like sex, immorality, violence, and hyper-religiosity, which is what I had. I I was hyper-religious or scrupulous about moral issues that come to mind against your will, right, over and over. 
And the fourth one was another one I had, which is concern about being responsible for harm or injury. So as I said, my OCD symptoms focused on those last two, ruminating thoughts about what was or wasn't a sin and repetitive behaviors that I needed to carry out to keep everyone in the whole entire world safe from harm, especially babies. I was afraid that something I might do or didn't do might cause somebody harm. And mostly, as I said, I felt like I had to protect all children. And I'll give you a quick example. I was walking Sarah in her stroller outside of our home. I had barely left our home when I saw a nail on the sidewalk. So I picked up the nail and I walked back to our house and dropped it in the trash can, the outside trash can, and then decided to continue walking with Sarah in the stroller. Well, not too long after I started walking again, I started thinking, did you throw that nail away or is it still there? Because if it's still there, Nancy, it will hurt a child and it'll be your fault and they'll probably die and you better go check. So I'd go back to that where the nail was and I checked. So I'm walking back and forth with the stroller and anyone driving by would say, why is that lady keep walking back and forth in the same place? But here's the thing about OCD. Anybody else that can relate to this will get it. You don't care that you look, quote unquote, crazy. You have to do it. And you know in your mind you're not crazy. You know that you are not. It is not psychosis. You, can, you still have your feet in reality. But the anxiety is great if you don't do the compulsive act. So it's, it's very disconcerting. So. Um, this type of compulsive behavior that I had would continue until another one would take its place. It was There was no resting except when I slept. Everything was compulsive thought or act. So this behavior is called a compulsion or a ritual. Um, and later, it's interesting, during my recovery, my psychiatrist explained that compulsive acts, my compulsive acts might partially be due to overcompensate for feelings of lack of control or subconscious anger regarding the lack of control that my new baby presented. Because, you know, baby schedules are different than ours. Hmm. They wake up whenever they want. And that was scary to me. So subconsciously, I resented her. So I overcompensated for that unacceptable feeling by trying to protect not only my baby, but all babies. Anyway, I found out that I was not pregnant because remember back then in the 70s, they didn't have tests that you could find out right away. So it took like two weeks, found out I was not pregnant. And my husband and I thought this would all go away. Oh, that was it. That was the stress. It'll all go away. It not only didn't not go away, it got way worse. Okay. Um, My other symptom, other than the checking for harm things was um, religious scrupulosity, which, as you know, is a subset of OCD, and it's really described well by Cassidy Lundgren in your episode um, 575. And so scrupulosity can often involve religious or moral obsessions. So my religious background, as I said before I joined this church, was very guilt-driven. So I didn't know the true nature of God. And as a convert, I didn't understand the atonement or how it worked. So I would think obsessively about every sin that I committed before I was baptized to make sure I had confessed them. And it got really weird because if I borrowed like a pen to write something down from someone, I felt compelled once I gave it back to ask them over and over if I gave them their pen back. Because if I didn't give them their pen back, that would be stealing and that's a sin and I'm going to go to hell. So I um, luckily, my psychiatrist helped me with that pretty soon on because he said, you know, write a note that says, let's say her name was Betty. Um, Nancy gave Betty her pen back and then I would have Betty sign it. And then I would go to Betty and say, Betty, I know this is ridiculous. I'm so sorry. But if I don't give this note to you, I might be bugging you. Could you please sign this note? And so she would sign the note and I would leave Betty alone. And then if I had to be compulsive about it, I would read the note over and over instead of bugging Betty. Because oftentimes if your obsessive compulsive issues or symptoms reach out to other people, you get even more anxiety from the negative feedback you get from them because they think you're nuts, right? So that 
that was very, very helpful. Anyway, between these obsessive thoughts and, and compulsive checking behaviors, life was very bleak, extremely painful and dark. I couldn't go shopping. I couldn't see friends because, as I said, some of my acts included asking people repetitive questions. I could, I could take care of my daughter with much help from my very supportive husband and mother-in-law, but I could barely attend church, and there was no way I could go to the temple or even read my scriptures because all of those were severe triggers for my scrupulosity symptoms. And it took me a long time, even after I was healed, to get back to the temple, you know. So treatment. Well, this was back in 1979. I'm so grateful and will always be grateful for the people that referred me to a psychiatrist in Pasadena, which is about 30 to 45 minutes from my house. I went every week. Wow. His name was Dr. Robert Schofield. And he saved my life. Dr. Schofield was a member of our church. He was also a Sunday school teacher. And so he knew the gospel backward and forward. And I know that it wasn't a coincidence that I went to him because he helped to heal me, not only emotionally, but spiritually. I'm so grateful for him. And I. So thankful for the people that referred me. Uh, there's different therapies that are used for people with OCD. And what I was um, introduced to was talk therapy, which includes cognitive behavioral therapy. That's what we use. A subset of that is exposure and response prevention therapy, or ERE, which was not my treatment at the time, but it was well described by Ben Delmo in um, episode 567. So CBT was my treatment, and he included in it tools that would help me uh, decrease the amount of time I would spend in behaviors or compulsive thoughts. For example, um, I, I told you about the pen and how instead of um, asking them over and over, I would um, write it down. Little tools like that he taught me I wouldn't even thought of myself, so that was helpful. Um, he said, no what ifs are allowed. And that, uh, you'll see with people with OCD, a lot of their concern is about lack of control, wondering about the future. We all fear the future in some way or another. And sometimes with us that have OCD, it's worse. And so no what ifs was like, if it was a what if question, like what if I, you know, um, don't, what if I don't pick up that nail? That's a what if question. And it's not allowed, you know, and so that kind of helped. The other thing that really helped me at the time was the question, what's the worst thing that can happen? And so he would have me go there. Like, I like well, that. I need to check the stove over and over or that, you know, well, Nancy, what's the worst thing that can happen? Uh, well, the house could burn down. He goes, yeah. But if you and your family are out of the house, is that the word? I go, yeah, that, you know, that would be a bummer real bad. But we'd be okay. So I would go there. I still do that sometimes. What is the worst thing that can happen? I'll go there and I'll say, that is not so bad. Um, also, I love visualization. I find it very powerful. And I use it a lot with the missionaries too. And I use it with myself. And he would say, visualize a boot in your head. And when those thoughts come in that are not comfortable for you, visualize kicking that boot out. Like kind of get mad at it and kicking it out. And so I use that sometimes with my missionaries, but I don't use the boot analogy. I use the analogy of a rushing river and they're standing on the edge of the rushing river and it's coming by real fast. And when they have these horrible thoughts, they they're jumping in the river and getting flown down the river with that thought, right? Well, I tell them it's okay. You recognize that thought. You say, Oh, hello thought, but not today. And then you watch the thought go down the river and you're still standing safely on the edge of the river. And so visualization is super helpful. The main thing, though, is I learned who Heavenly Father was. I learned that he has unconditional love for us, that he is our biggest cheerleader, that he is not nitpicking every mistake we make, and that he loves us no matter where we're at and no matter what we do. And thank goodness for Dr. Schofield for teaching me about true nature of God and about the atonement, because that was such a blessing in my life. 
So I learned to find a healthy balance in my life. And I learned that sometimes we have to say no to things because too much can overwhelm us. I, I heal through therapy every week. I heal through practicing the tools he gave me, reframing my thinking, understanding the true nature of God, and through safe, steady people in my life, especially my dear husband and family, and the prayers of others. See, I couldn't even pray. There's no way I could focus on praying, but I knew people were praying for me, and I could feel the power of their prayers. And of course, priesthood blessing. So I was very, very, very ill for a year. And then two years, I call it in recovery. But then once I recovered, you know, that negative energy turned into positive energy. And I went on to have, we went on to have three more children well-spaced apart because I didn't want, I continued seeing Dr. Schofield for the first couple of them. Um, I occasionally continued with counseling as needed, still see a counselor off and on, but this is a crazy miracle. I went on to get a nursing degree from Cal State University, Long Beach, and I spoke at graduation as the outstanding graduate of the College of Health and Human Services. I worked at a hosp- two hospitals, had to give medications. Guess what? You got to check the medications and make sure they're correct, or you could heal someone, which you know what used to be my fear. And I'm so grateful that I only followed the rules as it was taught me in nursing school, and I didn't go overboard on the checking. That was a miracle to me because a lot of people with OCD, they don't ever quite get over some of that stuff. So I'm, how could I work in a hospital? That's like craziness, but it worked. And then I uh, worked in hospice because I wanted to do more work with um, people that are, were in tough situations of families and people that were passing on. And then I also worked as a mentor for RN students at a community college um, while they were in nursing school. Um, almost done here with my story. I wanted to talk briefly about medication because at the time in 1979, all that about in the 80s, there wasn't a specific medication approved by the FDA for OCD. My doctor did try me on some antidepressants. They didn't do a thing for my symptoms. Um, so I stopped taking them because they didn't help. Now, luckily, uh, they were approved by the FDA. SSRIs are called Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, SSRIs. They were approved in about 1987. and um, they are uh, they actually are a safer medication that, than what was used before. And some of the medications that are used for symptoms of OCD that the FDA has approved is like Celexa and Prozac and Paxil and Zoloft. I currently take Zoloft. Um, so what these medications do briefly, I'll explain, is they increase the amount of serotonin in the brain. So serotonin is a neurotransmitter and you have to have that chemical to carry messages between the nerve cells in the brain. And it also plays a key role in mood. So if there's not enough serotonin, depression or anxiety can occur. And that's why it's called a chemical imbalance. So the majority of patients who take medication for OCD see their um, symptoms improve. Sometimes as it works with our missionaries, it takes several different medications until we find a medication or dose that works just for them. Some people, it doesn't help that much, but there are other options that psychiatrists can use to help with symptoms of OCD. And my point is, don't ever give up. Keep trying until you can get that help out that's out there to help with your symptoms. Um, So as I said, everything was fine dandy until 2020. And that's when I had back surgery for severe back pain. Um, It was also right at the beginning of COVID. So I had an emergency lumbar laminectomy, which solved the problem. But the combination of this COVID scare and isolation and PTSD from severe pain, I fell back into some obsessive thoughts. And I went, oh, no, not again. But I had the tools. So I, I used the tools, but it was super hard. So that's when I finally found a, a, a new psychiatrist that put me on a medication that's helped me so much, sertraline, another word, a name for that is Zoloft. And eventually I was put on Boostpar and it really helped. My counselor really helped because 
my compulsive thoughts were not the checking thing. I knew that was that never came back. But the scrupulosity did come back, which wasn't it wasn't that bad at all. I could still function really well. But I went to a counselor at family service and she said one sentence that has really helped me. And that is, what is my intention? So my concerns would be I would leave the store and I wondered, did I pay the lady at the store? Well, of course, I paid the lady at the store, but the scrupulosity wanted to ask if I did. And guess what? I wouldn't let it. You know why? Because the answer to what is my intention is that Nancy Smith is a good person and would never on purpose leave a store without paying. So, of course, your intention is good. And therefore, you don't have to go through the compulsive thought again. I use this with my missionaries and it really works a lot. So I'm grateful for that. Okay, to close up this part, this segment, my healthy, compulsive personality now is kept at bay using medication and counseling as needed and the tools I've used throughout my life. Also, a change in thinking from performance-based religious life to following promptings and carrying out service because I love Heavenly Father and my Savior. Keeping in mind the importance of balance. And that I don't have to fix everybody and everything right now. And I don't have to do it alone. I still have an obsessive personality, but I let it work for me now. So I've been able to harness that negative energy I had when I had active OCD symptoms into healthier and more balanced activities. So that's the end of my first segment. Do you have any thoughts or questions? That was just terrific. Thank you for being so honest and vulnerable. You have a lot of gifts. One of the gifts is being on this road for a long time. And then you have the long view of this to be able to help others that are just realizing this is their road. So let's just move on. Okay. So I want to share a little bit what I do in my calling as a church service missionary and mental health advisor role. And uh, in missionary medical, when I called them today in Salt Lake, they said that there's different people that carry on this role that I, I really would hope that that they're they're doing something like this because we've seen such an improvement in uh, the mental health in our mission. So what I do is I check the pre-mission history uh, for the missionary prior to them entering. So if I see anything on there that said they had a pre-existing condition of panic attacks or they're on medication or they used to be on medication, I flag that. And then I give them a little time when they first get in, because I don't want to just pounce on them, but I just call them and say, hey, how are you adjusting a mission? How are things going? And then they'll tell me, you know, usually it's good, but sometimes they need maybe a little bit of help or they need to get to the psychiatrist for refills. So that's been helpful. And then I respond to mental health uh, referrals from the Platts, um, or that's our president and sister Platt or the presence of our mission or from missionary medical, or from the missionaries themselves with the permission of the Platts. And then I triage the missionary. They either come to my home or I talk to them on the phone to see exactly what their concern or issue is. And sometimes we can just meet and talk about some strategies to improve emotional health because it might just be you know, a difficult time communicating with their companion. But if it's something that's a little more deep-seated and it is not in my scope of practice, I will get them into counseling and or to uh, the psychiatrist. And then I have to work with Salt Lake City to get um, the approval for that, which is easy to do. And then I follow up with them after counseling or once they've been prescribed a new medication to make sure that there's no side effects and that it's working for them. And then before departing home, I meet with them to navigate how they will continue to get the therapy at home that they might need. And I have to tell you that how much this program has helped our missionaries stay in the field and thrive. And I want to share one example. Um, I'm going to change his name. So this is not his name. His name is Elder Barnes, but that's not his name. <laughs> and I just want to quickly tell you his story real quick. He um, came out on the mission and the first week he was there, he said to himself, and he told me, I'm going home. I cannot handle this mission. I do not want to be here. I said, well, Let's talk about it. So we, and of course, we talked to the mission president's wife and mission president. They said, please talk to Sister Smith. So we talked and, and I said, well, do you, how long do you think you could 
wait, because we'd like to get you started on therapy and, and see how that works. He goes, I would like that. And so we got him right into therapy and the therapist and he and I all talked and decided that it would probably be a good idea to get in medic- on medication because this is definitely something that had been prior to his mission that he hadn't addressed really. But anyway, um, so he came back from a one session of counseling, said, okay, Sister Smith, I'm going to give it one more week. And then after that, uh, I'm going to go home. I said, absolutely, Elder. If you need to go home, then we support you 100%. So this went on for a couple more weeks. And I check in with him and he'd say, well, now I I think I'm going to give it two weeks. And he'd started on the medication. So it was just starting to kick in because sometimes SSRIs take a while to kick in. And so by the, I guess it was after about two months, and I'd been checking in with him weekly, right? We are on the phone a lot. He finally said, I was waiting for this to happen. And luckily it did. He said, I said, okay, do we need to set another like two weeks? And he goes, are you kidding? Sister Smith he goes, I love my mission. I'm staying. There's no way I'm going home. I'm doing so much better. And this is why I, I keep staying. I tell everyone, they say, why are you still doing this calling? Uh, let me tell you this story. <laughs> and so it's just so cool to see that happen where these missionaries come in and they maybe had some problems before. They didn't know they had problems. We got help for them. This great team of family service counselors and our psychiatrists and the Platts and other missionaries supporting them and their families supporting them. It's just amazing to see the change. And then what happens? Not only can they stay on the mission, but they thrive as individuals. So I just kind of wanted to share that with you to, to let you know. It's so great what happens with this in this mental health advisor role and why I love it so much. Any thoughts on that? That's great. I love that story. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to the mental health stigma, we see this a lot with um, with some of our missionaries, and it the stigma of being labeled um, crazy or you know different keeps some of them from asking for help. And this goes not just with the missionaries, but people in general. I think it's getting better now. People are, especially young people, are talking about it more openly. But the stigma of uh, being labeled keeps some people from asking for help. There's also a lot of misinformation regarding medication, counseling, and mental health in general. So in the show notes, um, Richard's going to uh, post some of these resources that I have that are actually really reliable sources for mental health, um, each of the kind of illnesses that there are, and medication. And that's the National Institute of Mental Health, also the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service National Helpline, um, medlineplus.gov, and then, of course, the new Suicide and Crisis Hotline, which is 988, and a book that has helped me tremendously called The Power of Stillness, Mindful Living for Latter-day Saints. Um, so those will be in the show notes. Um, I want to share a quick story about a missionary, will not share his name, of how he reached out for help and how it improved his life and what a journey he had. Um, again, I will not use his name. He was assigned initially to a mission different from our own. In 2019, and just got released from our mission in 2022, that's how long he'd been doing this. So he was uh, assigned right before COVID hit, and then he he served there for a while. He had stress, he had panic attacks, he had anxiety in the MTC, and he said he, quote, unquote, puffed it out. That's all he did. He didn't tell anyone he had a problem. Then COVID hit, and he was sent home for 14 months. Okay. And of course, release. And that's when he hit a deep depression and he had suicidal ideation. Well, he discovered during that time that he had same sex attraction and that he was bisexual, which added to his depression. And he he told his sister and his sister told his mom that he was having suicidal thoughts. So the family got him into therapy. They got him to the doctor, prescribed medication, and they were very supportive, which was such a blessing. He got a little bit better, quite a bit better, and was reassigned, reassigned to our mission, California Anaheim Mission. But the stress returned in the forms of perfectionism, 
and a little bit of still concern about his um, uh, sexual identity issues. So he was referred to me to President Sister Platt, and he did get counseling, and he saw our doctor for refills of the medication he was already on. Um, The counselor helped him. He was open with him about his um, same-sex attraction, and he counseled with him and with the Platts. They were very supportive. That helped a lot. But he stopped taking his meds because he thought he was having some side effects and also he wanted to see what life was like without taking the meds anymore, but it was not good. He had a downward spiral, severe depression, feelings of wanting to kill himself and dealt with it by staying hyper busy with no downtime to even think. So he realized, okay, he said, I have a chemical imbalance. I need to stay on this medication. It's okay, which it is okay. And so he went back to the psychiatrist that we have, and he was prescribed a couple of medications, which really improved his quality of life. Completed his mission, his mood and his self-esteem has improved. His feelings about his uh, identity are solid. He has a huge desire to come unto Christ, to help others come unto Christ, and to help people who struggle like he did. In fact, he told me he wanted to go to medical school and become a psychiatrist because he wanted to help people. He now knows that it's okay to be imperfect and he's still loved by Heavenly Father. And he knows that God is merciful and that God can make weak things strong because he used to try to have to be perfect with everything. And he realizes now that he doesn't have to be. He shared with me Ether 12, 27, how the Lord can make weak things become strong. He knows he's a child of God. He knows that he still has a place, uh, that God has a place for him along with all the other LBGTQ individuals in our church. And I'm just grateful that I had the opportunity to know this young man and to see him move through this struggle and become truly a, um, someone that the Lord can utilize to help other people. That's a great story. Um... I don't know if this missionary is listening, but you're a warrior and you're a hero and your courage to come back on your mission. Um, People around you that felt you were emotionally stable enough to do that. Um, Then being assigned to the the Platts mission, I was going to call them the Bratz, but the Platts mission. Mm -hmm. uh, It had to be somewhat inspired and then have Sister Smith as your mental health counselor, advisor. And being honest about your sexual orientation that can lead to people to having increased feelings of depression and suicidality as they're trying to reconcile that. So it's kind of sometimes a perfect storm, but it can be the perfect path to healing too, as you're able to um, be focused on helping other people, but also taking care of yourself. And that includes some of the things everybody's taking care of themselves journey is different. Um, Don't listen to this story and think, well, that's how I'm going to take care of myself is this way. But everybody needs to work with help professionals, um, work with personal revelation, work with trusted adults in your life to find your best place of healing. Some in this situation, the best path, and I know you've walked many, um, this path, Sister Smith, would be to go home. And that would be success. And that is the right thing to do. For others, in case of this um, good elder, the path was to stay and being able to process all these things. And I have to think that when you took that flight home, assuming you didn't live next door to the Anaheim Mission and took a car ride home, that you were in a better place emotionally, spiritually, and just a better foundation to navigate the rest of your life because you hit some of these things head on. Um and it's clear, I think everybody understands there's, there was never an intent to change your sexual orientation through the therapy, through seeing a psychiatrist, through drugs, uh, the medication I should use. Um, everybody realizes that's, and the church teaches that, that that's not expected to change, or, nor should we demand it in ourselves or others. But this is about helping you get through the emotional road you're walking and being at peace and acceptance with who you are and your identity. And I have to say, to what I'm glad you said that about that it's okay for them to go home because there are a number of missionaries that do need to go home. 
and this is the best route for them. And we try to make sure when they go home that they know that they are loved and this is the right thing to do. And there's no shame in doing that if they need to get help at home. And I think the culture, this is kind of a tangent, but I, we hear some of these difficult stories. I've heard a difficult story of a missionary who came home, but his mission president kind of made a vow that none of my missionaries are ever going to come home. Mm-hmm. And he made that vow, a, a promise to maybe um, somebody that he admired in the church or a leader in the church. And that's somehow the way he defined success as a mission leader is no one would come home. Now, I'm sure that the church never said that. I'm sure the church never told a mission president point blank, your success is no one comes home. But somehow culturally or sometimes somehow these sort of benchmarks of success, we internalize that that's our success as a local leader. And I use that just as an example. If we're local leaders, let's be careful about how we measure our success. And um, I'm not a mission president, obviously, and um, but I think you can be successful in your calling if people walk different roads and you can be at peace in this case with missionaries coming home and not feeling like you have failed as a church leader because some come home. In fact, that's probably the right thing for them to do as Sister Smith has seen firsthand and and to continue to love and support them. So um, that's just the reality of being a leader. I think a leader's job is not to um, sort of, I think a leader job is to teach principles, um, get the best mental and spiritual health and let people self-determine and make their own decisions and own that and honor their agency and kind of walk with them in the path that they feel is best for them, even if that includes um, coming home from their mission for any reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But it's great to hear stories of people that, I love these stories it's interesting. I'm thinking of our own son, Ben, in Samoa, and he's allowed me to write about his experience. So this is a public story. When he was talking to us with undiagnosed scrupulosity, he kind of did what you did. He just said, Mom and Dad, I think I can make it two more weeks. And um, he was open about suicidality and his dark feelings. And he did tell that to his mission president, our stake president. I think missionaries... That's a good thing to do. And they felt, everybody felt he was emotionally stable enough to continue. So it wasn't just an instant being sent home because he opened up about having suicidal ideation. Right. Um, I think there's, I think we need to create a culture that it's okay to open up if you feel that way. Um, and everybody kind of go slow and figure out what does this mean? What is the right thing? I don't think it's an instant ticket. I don't think it's an instant decision to send someone home, but it might be. And you could probably talk a lot about that, Sister Smith. Well, in our mission, we have what's called an MOQ, Missionary Outcome Questionnary. Yes, I've heard about this. Tell tell our listeners about that. Yes, question number eight um, says, um, I have thoughts of ending my life. And the, the answers are rarely, sometimes, you know, never, all that stuff. And so when they mention it, anything other than never, of course, we have to ask if they're safe. But like Good. you said, if they feel that, we've all, I don't know, I, I feel like everybody's thought about it, but, you know, are they going to act on it? If they're not going to act on it and they're safe, then, you know, we work through that, right? I love that questionnaire exists, and I think that's a, a thought that, you know, as parents, we want to know if our kids are, I think we want to create an environment, and there's obviously a questionnaire that you give missionaries, and I'm not saying we should give that to our kids, but I think the principle is there that if we are a parent and we have children in our home, that we want to create a feeling that if they're having feelings of suicide or suicidal thoughts, that they're able to open up to parents or to somebody about that. And that's not going to be a bad thing. And we're going to, and even proactively tell our kids, sometimes I wish I could go back and role play with my kids. Okay, kids, if you and I don't want to compare these two. If you mess up and look at porn, this is how I'm going to respond. If you are not straight, this is how I'm going to respond. If and none of these are the same. I don't want to put them all. Or if you are feeling feelings of suicidal um, ideation, this is how I respond. So I sort of role play as a parent. So I think it would some that are nervous about opening up to parents or to local leaders. If we kind of tell in advance, I'll respond. 
or this is how I respond if you have questions about the church, or this is how I respond if, you know, you mess up with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, even though we have standards in our family, this is how I respond if your choices take you down a different road. So anyway, I just love that that questionnaire exists. And so there's a kind of a mechanism for people to open up. It gives us a baseline for where they're at emotionally. And if it's a certain number, we know that it's something serious. And then as they get therapy, it's so fun to see the numbers go down because they're feeling less stress, you know, and being that I've gone through so much of what some of them have gone through, um, you know, it's interesting because I'll have a few missionaries who share what's going on with them and they might be repetitive thoughts or behaviors. And then they go, I'm crazy, aren't I, Sister Smith? I know I'm crazy. And I can say to them, I'll tell you what, guess what? You're not. I have the, I had those same things and I know you're not crazy. Let's, I'll tell you why you're not crazy. And then it just takes this load off. Like, oh, That's I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to be okay. You know? And I read this quote kind of at the end of a lot of podcasts, but I'm going to read it right now because it's so applicable to your story. It's the wounded healer. Um, Henry Norwin writes, a minister's service will not be perceived as authentic unless it comes from a heart wounded by the suffering about which he or she speaks. The great illusion of leadership is to think others can be out of the desert by someone who's never been there. So part of your gift and your ministry is and you shared that bravely at the beginning of this podcast is your own journey with your mental health. And you're then being able to help these missionaries. And yeah, you need training, um, but you also have the reality of walk this road. So it's real. And um, so I think that's a great thing for all of us as we're hearing Sister Smith's story is, is to recognize that our woundedness <laughs> And our deserts, you know, as we work through them and are hopefully able to heal from them, allow us to help others out of the similar desert. And in some ways, that gives us purpose for the difficult chapters of our life that we wished we never had. But maybe at some point, and I'm sure you're probably here, you're glad for those difficult chapters because of what it's given you the ability to lift others. You know, I um, I look back at those years and they really were horrible. but. I'm grateful for them now because I was brought to understand God. I was brought to Dr. Schofield who helped me understand who my savior is. Um, it helped me not to be, you know, driven by guilt, you know, but by love. And, and if I hadn't met him or gone through some of this, who knows when that would have occurred, you know, and I'm just so grateful for it now, but, and cause it just, it gave me, I think what happened was also part of my healing was there was this inner strong woman that did not want to live that way anymore. And I'm grateful for that part of my personality because it was that part of the personality plus all the help I was getting plus Emily Father's help that got me to where I'm at, at today. And OCD is a tricky thing because oftentimes people don't just like get over it. You know, it's still part of our lives. It's still part of my life. But as I say, I've been able to harness that negative energy and a little it, sometimes like my friends say nancy how do you do all the stuff you do i mean i won't go into that right now but it is my obsessive personality <laughs> but i've been able to take it and do a good stuff but i have to you know my good old husband randy says uh time to say no to that time to say no to that you know and i have to listen to him because it's true sometimes we have to say no and set a balance and heavenly father is going to be there for us no matter what we're doing you know um, I want to come to your strat your last section, but I just want to mention, I've mentioned this a little bit, but in um, this chapter six of my book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture, we do talk about mental illness and suicide. And I open up about twice in my life, I've seen a therapist, but um, the second time was when I was a YSA bishop. And I remember feeling so much shame. I remember actually and I wrote this in the book that um, I was so glad my therapist appoint my therapist location was on the other side of the valley because I I dreaded that a YSA would see their bishop walking into a therapist and I probably thought I probably thought of the lie I would say if somebody saw me in the parking lot because there's other offices in that building yeah but listeners I and I wrote this in the chapter I I realized I shouldn't have felt that way 
In fact, I might have even opened up to the YSAs in an appropriate situation about seeing a therapist right then. And that might have normalized it and taken the stigma away. If the bishop is seeing a therapist, maybe it's okay for me to see a therapist, and maybe it's okay for me to open up to the bishop about how I'm feeling. And even if I'm feeling suicidal, I wasn't feeling suicidal, but I knew I needed to see a therapist. And that therapist really helped me. So it's just a little bit of my own story about trying to take away, I share that takeaway stigma and shame and recognize seeing a therapist or not being emotionally healthy did not, at least in my situation, impact my ability to be, I think, um, an okay bishop. And just like missionaries that are seeing therapists, um, like many are working with you, I, God can still work with you through you to bless the lives of others. I one other thought that came to my mind is this playing mind games to keep, stay on your mission. I remember my own mission after the first day in England in 1980. It was an intense day, Sister Smith. And I remember coming home that night after day one of two years, this, I can't do this. <laughs> that doing, repeating that for 520 days I, or 730 days, I think I did the math, was just overwhelming. And God in that night said, just do one day at a time. And I'm sure you've canceled your missionaries, but I, that really worked for me. I didn't then try to think about two years or six months or two winters in England. I just tried to p- play mind games and say, I'm just going to do another day and I'll just do it. And that's that worked for me in my mental gymnastics of then after a while, I got to the point you described in this missionary where I didn't need to do that. I didn't do that all 530 days of 730 days of my mission. Yeah. Um, but at f- first, it really worked. Called baby steps. <laughs> baby steps. And I should mention that I don't want to talk too much about myself, but my first companion was, is, was British. He still is British. And his name's David Rutley. And I was really honored to have a Britishman being in England. And he kind of taught me the ropes of the culture. And he told me during our two months together that one day he was going to be um, a member of parliament. And I kind of rolled my eyes at first and because everybody has big ideas in their teenage years. I guess we were 21 adults. But after spending two years with Elder Rutley, I realized he is going to be a member of parliament. This kid is a top-notch, incredible person. And right now, if you Google David Rutley, you will see that he's a member of parliament. And it and I share that just you, if you have dreams and people like me sort of doubt you or roll their eyes, don't let, follow your dreams. Anything's possible. And he's a terrific uh, member of parliament. All right, back to you, Sister Smith. You've got more to share. I just have one last little segment here that I hope will help all of us. It helps me a lot. And it's just a few strategies to improve our mental health. And we all could use this, all of us, no matter where we're at. Um, one thing that really helped pull me out of my, you know, depression and such was meditation. Um, I love the book, uh, The Power of Stillness, Mindful Living for Latter-day Saints, and that'll be in the show notes. Um, it's just super helpful. And meditation is the practice of focused concentration. Usually the concentration is on the breathing, but by doing that, you're bringing oneself back to the present over and over because much of anxiety is future focused worrying about the future that you can't control so it helps to calm the mind from future thinking because you're just focused on the breathing a lot of people young mothers people with busy jobs may not be able to find a lot of time to do it but even if you could find five minutes a day i use an app called the calm app i probably should put that in the show notes too d-a-l-m it helped me so much it teaches you how to meditate it's like all different levels of meditation there. So the Calm app really was a lifesaver for me. The second one is to exercise. Now, I don't mean that you have to run and, you know, work out like lift weights and do crazy stuff. I mean, just getting out and moving, getting in the sun, uh, maybe doing a little gardening, finding something that you like to do. Even chair yoga can help because exercise promotes the release of an endorphin uh, or hormones are called endorphins. And that's the body's natural painkiller because they're um, they activate opioid receptors in the brain. So opioid receptors help to minimize discomfort. So if you're exercising, if you're laughing, having sex, these all re- uh, 
uh, release this hormone called endorphins. It's the feel-good hormone. And they can bring about uh, feelings of general well-being. So that's why everyone says they feel so good after they exercise. It also helps with self-esteem and with concentration and sleep and your mood. Okay. Um, the next one is rest. Well, some people say, how am I supposed to get rest? Well, we've got to carve it out however we can and get the help we need for young moms and we are getting the sleep we need. Somehow we've got to get the rest because if we do that, you know, have you ever had this thing where you sometimes feel like you have to um, remember something so you can't fall asleep? You know, so what I do is I, I keep a notepad by my bed and I write whatever it is and throw it down on the floor. So it's the first thing that I see and then I can let it go and go to sleep. Little things like that. The Calm app has um, relaxation exercises to help fall, you, fall asleep. So there are ways to do this. Um, nutrition, you know, people think, well, how does that affect my mental health? But it does. If we're dehydrated, it can affect our mood. Um, eating a lot of uh, sugar can make our blood sugar go high and then plummet. And that makes us, you know, it can affect our mood. Also, you know, complex carbohydrates such as uh, beans, peas, whole grains, vegetables, they, um, they digest more slowly. And so there's not such a big spike in the blood sugar. And so it can create a calmer feeling than the, the simple carbohydrates that have a lot of sugar in them. Uh, we already talked about reducing the stigma. You know, again, I, I love sharing my story. I have absolutely no problem sharing my story about mental health because it's part of me. That's me. And I'm okay. And everybody else that needs help is okay too. So if we can all just, you know, I know some of it's cultural. Some of our missionaries from other cultures just refuse to get help, refuse to literally. And so we work with them however we can, because of course we don't want to force them and we want to respect their views, but we need to reduce the stigma so that people can get the help they need. And when they do, they realize this isn't so bad. I had a couple of missionaries recently who did not want to go on medication because they'd been told their whole lives by their parents, that's for weak people, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that kind of gets my blood boiling. But anyway, I love these people and I, and I love their families, but um, they finally decided they couldn't handle it. They needed to get on meds because their depression was so severe. And sure enough, we baby stepped them onto meds, real low dose, and now they're at a therapeutic level and it's like, okay. So reduce the stigma. And then the next one, ask for help. Um, you know, if we live with someone uh, a friend, or we know we have a friend that's going through a difficult time, we can provide support. So we maybe they are so depressed they can't hardly get out of bed. So we can maybe be the one to help the re find the reliable resource that can help them with their struggles. Just like someone found Dr. Schofield for me when I couldn't do anything. Um, even if we don't know how to relate to what they're going on, like going through, like with me, with asking someone over and over. If I gave them their pen back, if I if we validate that their pain is real, this can be an important step in finding understanding and healing. We need to validate because we don't understand it, but we love them and we want to help them. So I you can I understand you're struggling right now. What can I do to help? Instead of what? Are you crazy? You know what I mean? Um, so we all get discouraged, sad, you know. That's, that's just part of life. But if things are getting too much for us and we feel like we can't cope, or even before we get to that level, we need to reach out for help. And, you know, LDS Family Service provides counseling, and all you need is to meet with your bishop and get a referral. And then once that referral goes through, which is usually pretty quick, you're able to go to family service. And they actually are more cost-effective than counselors outside of family service, I have found, generally, most areas. And so that's right there in many of our um, communities that we have access to. And these ones are, these are members of the church who understand our culture. They understand about the Lord. They understand the gospel. And so they're able to share and, and listen and um, provide help and tools. Um, I'm getting close to being done. Self-acceptance is really important. We have a lot of missionaries that do not 
accept who they are. They want to be like, oh, I want to be like that missionary. I want to act like that missionary. But we need to be able to know that we're each unique and that Heavenly Father loves us where we're at. Um, and, you know, changing the way we speak about ourselves or what we're thinking of, for instance, I'll never make it through this day. You know, we've all said that. Let's rewrite that to I've made it through every day so far and I'm going to make it through today. All I have to do right now is what is in front of me one baby step at a time. So we need to kind of change that negative thinking to a positive like you like you did, you know, um, each day baby steps through that mission, right? And then finding a balance. That's the worst thing for me is finding the balance because I want to do all these things all at once. And it's, my brain is like constantly, oh, that person needs help. Oh, go do that. And so I, I have to sit down and, and kind of sit on my hands, you know, but find a balance. That's really important because um, if we're putting all eggs in one basket, that's not healthy. So we need to really be um, asking our Savior what he wants us to do right now. What is most important right now? Some of us have a hard time praying when we are quite ill. And I cannot tell you the power that you receive through other people's prayers. The blessing that, well, I'll just share. When our son, who was 14 at the time, was diagnosed with osteogenic sarcoma or bone cancer. Wow. Um, he's still with us. But at the time, he was 14. And I had just come home from the hospital where he had just been getting more chemo. And it was about 10 o'clock at night, and I just had stepped in the shower, and I felt this overwhelming feeling of, of just love. And it, it came to me that these were the prayers of people praying for me right then and there for our son and for us. And I felt really almost physically lifted up from the strength and power of those prayers. And I'll never forget that experience because I know people were praying for me as they are praying for these missionaries we have. You know, people always say, you know, bless the missionaries. You know, I know the Lord answers those prayers. I've seen it happen in my life working with these missionaries where he has sent them here not only to serve the people in this mission, but to be healed. And it's just been such a, a blessing for me. And I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Um, thank you for your service. Um, if there's parents listening of current missionaries or future missionaries, I think this is a window into the support system that exists within missions around the church. You have mission leaders and mission president and his wife, but you have this whole circle of support. Some of that's centralized in Salt Lake City, but a lot of it's right there on the front lines, like the Sister Smiths of the world and many others that are dedicated and consecrated for the success of missionaries. And I think it's scary as a parent to send a missionary out, but I think it's good to know that there's a support network um, rooting for and cheering for the success and also working to help them keep emotionally safe. So I think it's, we've never done a podcast with a current um, mission, a service missionary before a mental health advisor. So I think this is a window into this world that most of us don't usually connect with. I wanted to close listeners with just some of my thoughts I put on Instagram. It's kind of a series of slides I'll just read. Um, and it, I'm doing this because of that, that cultural thing that if we're strong, we don't need medication. <laughs> um, our doctrine is that all things are possible through Christ, as we know he raised Lazarus from the dead. However, for mental illness, my feeling is generally Jesus doesn't cure it, just like he doesn't cure a broken leg. Yes, Jesus, through his atonement, can give us more hope and peace. Yes, turning to Jesus is a good thing. Yes, miracles can happen. I worry if we tell someone with a mental illness to solve it by turning to Jesus and practicing more religious effort, we are putting it all back on them to solve it. We don't ask this to someone with a broken leg, so I don't think we should ask to someone um, with mental health challenges. Just like we turn to a doctor for a broken leg, we need to turn to therapists for mental illness. I also worry as the mental illness continues, even with more religious effort, one falsely concludes 
their heavenly parents do not love them and they are broken, that something is missing in their religious activity formula, leading them to try harder, um, leading to more shame and feelings of brokenness. I also worry invoking Satan into discussion around mental illness creates a feeling this is a spiritual issue. Yes, Satan is real, but I don't think Satan causes mental illness or prevents its cure, just like Satan doesn't cause a broken leg or prevents its healing. I do believe that Satan can reduce hope, increase shame, and keep us from reaching out to the path of healing. Jesus increased hope, reduces shame, and wants us to find paths of healing. I hope and say we do things to help others and ourselves be more open to therapy for mental illness and not measure and not just messages of just be more faithful. It's not a spiritual weakness, just like having broken leg is not a spiritual weakness. And like some physical illness, some mental illnesses may not be healed in mortality. That's the reality of our fallen mortal world. But I believe Jesus, and I believe he can bring peace into our lives. We need Jesus, we need doctors, and we need therapists. And if you're suicidal or have suicidal ideation, please call, text, chat, 988. So that's just some of my layman's perspective on this topic after listening to people like you that have expertise in this area. So um, Nancy Smith, thank you for sharing your life with us for an hour um, Thank you. you've had a son with a serious medical issue. You've talked about your own mental health. You've spent seven years as a mental health advisor. My feeling is there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that are blessed. And not only have you blessed them, but you've given them tools to bless others because they see how this works in their lives. They want to, at a really teachable point in their life, take what they've learned and and share it with others. So the effects of your service ripple and that's me not only talking to Sister Smith, but all of you in the mental health field. Um, there's a, a deficit of people like Sister Smith in this space. Many of you are thinking about careers in this space because you recognize this. I go speak sometimes at BYU and to some of the classes that are training people to become therapists. And you're if you decide that's your road, it's a road that's really needed right now. Big and, time. And so... Um, thank you for all of you therapists out there that are helping. Your work is so needed. And thank you, Sister Nancy Smith, for be- joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.